And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. I hope we're a little more enthusiastic by the end of the morning, but good, good. It's good. It's not a bad place to start, you know, like middle of the row. Uh, I'm so excited to be back. I missed you all. Um, we were on vacation last week, and we had a great time as a family, and it was really good. We loved it. Um, and I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful for the Dream Team and all the people who serve and make it happen and, and do that while we're gone, and it's incredible. Jen did a great job speaking last week, didn't she? It was so good. Uh, we listened to it on the ride home. Uh, I'm excited. We're going to jump right in. we got a lot to cover, but let's pray first. God, we thank you that you are good. We praise you because you are worthy of our praise. God, we're grateful for your presence here with us. God, would you speak to us through your word? Would you speak through me? Would you have your way this morning? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I want to start out with a quote. It's a long one, but it's good. Stick with me. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Maybe you've heard that before. It's from A.W. Tozer. Uh, it's a pretty famous quote, but I want to read a little past that. All right, so let's keep going. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. A man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base. It's good or bad based on, it's, uh, worship is pure based as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question for, before the church is always God himself. And the most um, important fact about any man is, is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he has deep in his heart, what he thinks about who God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards this mental image of God. This is true not only in the individual Christian, but the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God, who he is, what you conceive him to be like. And I mean, I love how A.W. Tozer in his way is just like, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move in that direction. There's something deep within us. Even if we're like, I don't think about God that much, there's something inside of you that believes something about God and that's shaping how you live. It's shaping what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say, how you interact with others, a fear you have or a compassion you have. We are influenced by our view of God. It shapes us. It changes us. A.W. Tozer says it's the most important thing about you. C.S. Lewis argues that Tozer was wrong. You're like, I didn't see that coming. But Tozer's like, Tozer's like, I don't think it's what we think about God. I think it's about what he thinks about us. He's like, that's the most important thing. I would argue that they're roughly saying the same thing, though. That how we think about God, which includes how he thinks about us, changes everything. So how do you think about God? What comes to mind when you think about God? Love and compassion, or anger and justice, distance, that he's not that relational, or that he is very relational, that he's hyper-controlling, or that he's very hands-off, or what comes to your mind when you think about God? It shapes who we are. 
I think sometimes we wrestle with tensions. Even if we know something intellectually, we still deep down might believe something a little different than that. That we're like, yes, he's loving, but isn't he also angry? Or, or, or we have a hard time reconciling, like, is the God of the Old Testament really the God of the New Testament? Like, is that the same? Like, how do we piece it together? What is our view of God? This is what Exodus 34 says. This is God describing himself. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. He's using his personal name that he revealed to him earlier in Exodus. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We're like, we love that. That sounds so good. But it keeps going. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's an interesting passage. It's actually the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Like this passage shows up more than two dozen times throughout Scripture. In, in parts or in whole, like I lost track. Like I, yeah, I found like 27 or something like that. And there's just a lot of them. But there's even more than that, I'm sure. And it's just like, it shows up this idea of God being abounding in love and gracious and compassionate. And it's a very famous passage. But what's interesting is where it shows up. Where it shows up. So if you've been with us for a while, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus. We're going to wrap it up in the next few weeks before our birthday Sunday, and we're going to kick off a new series. I'm really excited about it. But we've been in the book of Exodus, and if you're new, I just want to give you a snapshot of where we are. This is where we are in the book. We've got this chapter. I got uh, it broken into two spots. We've got rescue and covenant. That's an oversimplification. But the first 18 chapters of the book is about God rescuing them from slavery, freeing them from the Egyptians, crossing the Red Sea, all that goes with it, the manna, and all of those things. And that's like the story part. That's like what we think of when we watch Prince of Egypt and all of that. And then the second half of the book, we've got the covenant. In chapter 19, there's that turning point we talked about a few weeks ago where God's like, you're my special people. You're my treasure, and I love you, and I want you to be on display for the world to see what you're like and to see how I am by the way I treat you. And Israel's like, that sounds awesome. We're in. Like, that was like God's proposal. He's like, this, let's enter into covenant. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's enter into this covenant. And he gives them the Ten Commandments and the law, and, and he talks about how he's going to dwell with them. And so I want to break that section a little farther. We've got the ceremony, which is like, God's proposal and then into the marriage, the covenant, this relationship between him and his people and the laws laid out there. And then he goes into talking about the tabernacle. He's like, guys, not only are we going to be in relationship, we're going to get married. He's like, I'm going to live with you. The God of the universe who created everything is like to his people, I'm going to come dwell with you. And this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to describe the tabernacle. And like we talked about some of those pieces that are there, the altar and the incense and all of those different elements. And in the middle of God describing how he's going to dwell with them, there's this little interruption with the golden calf story. Some of you know it. You're familiar with it. If not, we're going to get there. That's where we're going to be this morning. And then after the golden calf story, it goes back to the tabernacle where it's like, all right, we're actually going to build it and we're going to build it the exact way God says. And then in chapter 40, the presence of God comes and dwells with Israel. So that's the overview of the book of Exodus. And in the middle of this second part, there's these little few chapters that almost seem out of place. 
It's like we've got the commandments and the laws and the tabernacle instructions, and we've got seven speeches from God about the different priestly garments, and in the middle of that, God's like, hold on, Moses. The people are freaking out down there. They're doing some crazy stuff, and that's what we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up right when the people are freaking out. So Moses is on the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days. It's somewhere in this 40 days and 40 nights time period, and God's speaking to him, and God's presence is there. It's almost like a little picture of heaven on earth. It's like Eden. And this is what happens. This is starting in verse 4 of chapter 32. He took the gold from them. This is Aaron. They came to Aaron. You know, Aaron's like Moses' brother. He's like been the mouthpiece with Pharaoh, but then he's also kind of now the lead priest. And so they're like, Aaron, we don't know exactly what they said. We don't know if it's because Moses is taking so long and they're just worried about it, or we don't know what's going on, but they're like, we, we need to do something. We like need an idol, or we need to worship something. And so Aaron's like, give me all of your jewelry. Give me the earrings. Give me the gold. Give me all that stuff. And it says, he took the gold from them and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then he said, Israel, then they said, not Aaron, they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And verse 5, Aaron saw this, and he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow, and that's to Yahweh. This is, this is fascinating to me. I'm like, I wish there was more details here, because it's like, Israel's like, you built this calf, Aaron, and like, these are the gods, like Elohim, general gods who led us out of Egypt. And then Aaron's like, well, I better build an altar in front of it and be like, well, it's Yahweh, guys. Remember, like, this is the God who rescued us. It's like, it's almost like he's trying to make a bad situation better, where he's like, we're going to have a festival to Yahweh tomorrow. So early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, presented fellowship offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink. And I love that one translation says they got up to party. Like, that's basically the idea. Like, the NIV says to indulge in revelry, which no one talks like that. But like, they just threw a party afterwards. They're like, we sacrificed to this new calf that they're like, these are our gods. And Aaron's like, no, it's, it's Yahweh. And then they're like, whatever, we're throwing a party. And it's in the middle of this that Moses is receiving the proposal terms, the terms of the covenant, like all of that's going down. And God's like, this is how I'm going to dwell with you. And, and he's like, Moses, they're, they're acting out. In verse 7, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once. For your people, you brought up from the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. I love God being like, your people. Like throughout, throughout Exodus, it's always been God's people that he led out of Egypt and Moses and him are always going back and forth. And right now he's like, Moses, these are your people. This is your problem. And I don't know if you've ever like parenting, you're kind of like, those are your kids. <laughs> like, they, like they're acting out, that's you. And then that happened this week because we knew we were preaching on this passage. Abigail's like, those are your kids. You need to go talk to them. And I was like, all right. But yeah, God's like, Moses, they're acting out. They've quickly turned away from what I've commanded them. I mean, if you guys were here last week, this is like the first two things. God's like, no other gods before me, no idols. And immediately while they're in the middle of like the ceremony covenant happening, they build an idol to another God. And so he's like, you need to go down. They've quickly turned away from what I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf, and they have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, Israel, these are your gods. And so he's telling Moses, Moses, this is what's going down, on down there. He's like, we're in the middle of this thing, 
and it's just getting started. And I've been patient with them. I've been patient with all of you. Like, as you've been wandering and complaining that there's no water and no food, I haven't said anything. I've just provided. And, like, I've been really patient. But, like, we just said this is what we're going to do, that you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And you're, they're immediately being disloyal. Like, immediately. It's the imagery of you get married and your spouse cheats on your honeymoon. Like, it's egregious. If you think that's too extreme of language, that's language the Old Testament uses. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, it says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you Israel have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. This imagery that God uses throughout the Old Testament saying, Guys, you are being unfaithful to me. And they're just down there throwing a party. And, and Moses, this is what I love, is like part one of this story is that the covenant is broken as soon as it started. And that's part one. But part two is like Moses intercedes on their behalf. He, does, he hasn't even seen what's going on down there yet. He hasn't even, he's just heard God telling him about it. And he's like, God, would you, would you just n- not start over? Because God's angry. Rightfully so. The people, they said, we do want this. He gave them the opportunity. He's like, Moses, remember chapter 19? He's like, go tell them, this is what I want and see what they say. And they're like, yes, we want that. And so they had, they said, yes, we want to be married, God. We want to be your covenant people, your special treasure. We want to do all those things. And then immediately they break it. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and they're indeed stiff-necked people. That's like a Hebrew idiom. It's like a, a phrase meaning they're stubborn, they're prideful. He's like, they, they're indeed stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God's like, Moses, let's just hit the reset button. I'll deal with them. No longer Israelites. We'll do the Mosesites. And like, we're just going to start over. But Moses isn't there for it. Moses, on, on behalf of Israel, is like, no, God, you've done too much. Like, it's the appeal of, like, sunken costs. You know, have you ever been that? You're like, we've spent too much money to change our mind now. He's like, God, you've done too much. You've rescued them from, from Egypt. And what would the Egyptians think? He's like, your reputation, too. Like, I'm going to appeal to that. He's like, your, your reputation's on the line. Like, what are the Egyptians going to think that you rescue them and then you go and just destroy them? And he's like, but not even that. He's like, the covenant. He's like, you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he uses Jacob's new name, Israel which is really cool because over and over and over, it's always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he goes, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, alluding to the fact that this is the promise. This is the people that you, you made that covenant to. He's like, would you be faithful to that? I was spending a little time just reflecting on the audacity of Moses. Because I don't know if I would, I don't know what I would have done if I was Moses. Like, I don't know if I would have taken God up on the offer and been like, yeah, all right, let's just start over, me and you. Or if I would have just been like, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's, I feel like that's probably what I would do. I'd just be like, I don't know. Whatever you want to do. But Moses is like standing toe-to-toe with God and being like, God, remember. And God's being relational here. He's expressing his emotions before Moses. He's like letting them know. He's like, Moses, I need some alone time because I'm pretty angry. I'm, I'm angry with them. And Moses is like, God, would you relent? Would you, would you give them another chance? What boldness. I love how, like, even maybe your, your header in your Bible might say this is like Moses interceding, depending on which translation you have. 
And I love that imagery of just Moses on behalf of the people standing before God saying, God, would, would you spare them? Yeah. Would you give us another chance? And so Moses then goes down the mountain and he can hear some noise. And Joshua is like his assistant and he becomes a main character later in the story. But Joshua is going down with him and he's like, Moses, do you hear all that? There's like a ton of noise down there because Joshua doesn't know the conversation Moses just had with God. He's like, do you hear all that? He's like, it sounds like war or, or I don't know. And Moses is like, that's not war. That's not us winning or losing. And he's like, it's not good. And they get down there and Moses sees what God had described. And Moses has the same reaction as God. He gets angry. It's a righteous anger. It's not, it's not a, a temper tantrum. I know if you're familiar with the story, this is the moment that Moses breaks the two tablets that the, the commandments are written on. And growing up, I always pictured that Moses is just like so angry. He's just like, is throwing like a temper tantrum. But the more I've studied it and the more I understand, like I think Moses, it's like Jesus in the temple. It's like a righteous anger. It's like symbolically before the people, he like breaks them, showing you've broken the covenant. Like, you guys, we just entered into this and you've already broken it. And he's, he's angry with them and he, he's talking to Aaron and he's like, Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron's like, I don't know. It's like, I put the stuff in the fire and a calf came out. And that's like, read it later today. It's so funny. Like, I laughed out loud because Aaron's like, I don't know, like a calf came out. And I'm like, it literally says in the chapter before that you engraved it. Like you, you made that thing. But he's like, he's like standoffish about it. And which I get, you know, Aaron's like, I don't know, I, I messed up. And he's like, don't be mad. But Moses is, he's, he's very mad. And so he breaks the, the tablets and he breaks the idol and he smashes it and he grinds it up and he puts it in the water and he makes them all drink it. Moses is like, no, this is, this is not acceptable. He's, he's angry. And then Moses does this, this moment that is easy to skip over. And if you want to just preach a message that's easy, this is a part you would want to skip. Because Moses goes, guys, is anybody still for the Lord? And a whole group of people come. And then he says, all right, you guys go kill some of the others. And that seems so intense to our culture. That seems like, that's so abrasive, but it's, it's another opportunity. It's another moment where Moses has already appealed to God, but Moses is saying, guys, who is still in it? Like there's judgment coming. He's like, but you don't have to have it. And in the beginning, and we're going to come back to this more later, but when I said, how do you think about God? I think sometimes we wrestle with like, He's judge, and we know he's just, and we know he has to deal with sin, but we also know he's loving and compassionate, and we sometimes have a hard time putting those together. But, but look at this. Even to the last moment, the only way you face judgment is to not choose mercy. The only way you will face judgment is to not choose mercy. That everything God always does, Old Testament and New Testament, is always an opportunity. There's always a way out. If you would repent, if you would choose me, if you would. And I mean, that is the cross, right? Yeah. The cross is that all of us deserve judgment. We've all messed up. And Jesus is literally saying, hanging there, this is the way. All you have to do is choose me. If you don't want judgment, choose mercy. Yeah. That God is so kind. He's so gracious. 
those verses that we read in the beginning where it says he's slow to anger are true, that he's patient, but he's also just. And we like justice when, it, when it's on our side, when we're like, yes, he fights for the oppressed and he, he cares about the least of these and he, he cares about the marginalized and he does all that. But, but when justice is, we're the ones who are in trouble, we, we don't like it anymore. We're like, I don't want that. But God in his kindness is like, I will give you every opportunity to choose mercy along the way. That the only way to face judgment with God is to not choose mercy. It brings to mind the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians where he's like, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift. It's a free gift that like all of us deserve judgment, but it's like all you have to do is accept this free gift. That's a kind, merciful God who's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. So Moses gives them an opportunity and he kind of like deals with everything down there and he returns to the Lord. This is verse 31. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. Moses goes back to God. He's like, I see it now. He's like, I see what you saw. They've messed up. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin. He's like, God, I see it. They really did mess up. But would you forgive them? And he's like, if not, would you blot me out of the book you've written? He's like, Moses is like, he's like, can I take their place somehow? What a beautiful image long before Christ comes of the picture of Christ saying, I will take their place, that I am the perfect sacrifice and substitute. Moses is saying, hey, I, I, he doesn't even know that yet, but he's like, I will take their place if that's possible. Moses prays with so much boldly. He comes before God, like literally talking to God with so much boldness. God, would you forgive them? I'm coming on their behalf. And I, this challenged me this week. is like, how boldly am I willing to pray? How boldly will I come before God? Because I pray. I, I pray a lot. And I pray boldly about some things. But, but Moses like encouraged me and inspired me to like a new level of boldness. Where he's like, I'm coming to God and saying, God, this is your character. This is your nature. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk to you boldly in alignment with that. I want to grow in that. He also had so much humility that like he just was like glossed over the opportunity to restart with God. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. He's like, this is, this is who you are. And this is what I want. He has boldness and humility. And then he kind of gets into this conversation with God where he's making these appeals. And little side note, like there's so much in these passages that I had to cut out because it would have been like a 10 hour message. Like, honestly, I loved studying it. But this is worth sharing. Moses when he originally is called by God on this same mountain, gives five main excuses, appeals to God of like, I'm not the right person. And in this moment on the same mountain, he gives like five excuses for God not to do the same thing. Like he's like, God, you don't give up. Like you don't quit. In the same way that he was like, God, I'm not, I'm not called to this. And I, I love that. It's beautiful. But Moses in this moment is like, God, would you, would you forgive them? And then God is like, you guys can still go to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. An angel's going to lead you there. You're going to still go to the promised land. It'll still, the angel will lead you, and you'll still defeat all of the bad guys and all that stuff. I'm still going to give you the promised land. He's like, but I'm not going to go. And Moses is like, if you don't go, I don't want to go. Think about that. I mean, if you grew up in and around church, you've heard that before. 
You've heard a whole message on that. Like, if you're not going, I'm not going. And we're going to talk about the presence of God next week. Abigail, I'm excited for it. It's going to be great. But Moses, Moses is saying, we would rather have the wilderness and the mountain with you than we would have the land without you. Let that sink in for a moment. Are you, would you rather have God with you in a hard moment than have everything going smoothly without God? It's a convicting thought. Because I think we need to remember that the God of the promise is better than the promise itself. That God's presence is better than God's presence. That's on the screen so that it can make sense. God's presence is better than God's presence. That, that him with us is better than what he offers us. That, that is the best gift. So Moses is like, hey, if you're just offering the land without you, I don't want it. I've spent too much time with you now. I know too much about your character and your nature and like how you've led us out of Egypt. Like you've changed me in a way that I know you are what I want most. I want you more than anything you even offer. It's like Psalm 27 where David's crying out and he's like, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. He's like, all I want is to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon his face, to seek him in his temple. David's just like, I I just want God's presence. Like, are we willing to be people that are more passionate about the presence of God than anything else? That we'd rather have the God, God himself more than the gift, whatever he's offering us, whatever we're headed towards. Moses, the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked. Because Moses is like, God, we, we won't go without you. And this is beautiful. Verse 17, the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. The whole nation's future is changed because of Moses. Because Moses is like, God, if you don't go, we don't want it. I love, there's, there's a beautiful word here in Hebrew that talks about how God changed his mind. And in, in some translations, it says relented. And it's really the same word as repent. And it's not because God did anything wrong. He doesn't sin. He's perfect. He's holy. But the idea of him turning 180 because of what Moses prayed. Can you imagine if your prayers have that power? They do. James talks about like the guys in the Old Testament, they have nothing compared to what we have. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's like, Elijah prayed and the rain stopped. He's like, you can do that. That same spirit lives inside of you. You can pray. It changes things. So God and Moses are having this moment where God's like changing his mind in front of Moses. And it it messes with our theology. It messes with what we think about God but he's relational. And then Moses says, let me see your glory. Would you let me see your glory? And then God's like, I will, I will let my goodness pass in front of you, but you can't see my face. It'll kill you. And so he's like, Moses, go back down, get ready. He's like, get two more tablets. We're going to restart this thing. That's part three, is that the covenant is restored and God's presence is restored. That the covenant's broken, Moses intercedes, and then God's presence is restored to the people. It's such a beautiful picture. I mean, you can see how it relates to the New Testament, right? Like, we messed up, Jesus made a way, and then God's presence comes and dwells with us. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come. And it makes so much sense why in the literary 
format of Exodus. It's right in the middle of the instructions to build the temple and the temple being built. That it's right there. That when we mess up and separate ourselves from the presence of God, the solution for that is the presence of God. That we need God to come into our brokenness. That is the only solution. There's nothing we can do. Moses is like, hey, we can't do anything. We have nothing to offer you, but would you still? Would you still? So verse 4, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and took the stone tablets in his hand and climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. And this is when the Lord comes down in a cloud. It's beautiful. I already skipped a bunch too that I wanted to talk about, but we got to keep moving. I have so much to talk about. And God comes down and says what we read earlier. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children. And if you study that, that's, that's a really interesting thing too because that's like a Hebrew idiom when you say three or four. It, like, it does it in Proverbs too. There's a couple other spots that it happens. And really three or four just means like any number. It's like, hey, as long as, as they keep messing up, I'm going to keep punishing them. But, but I'm going to bless for a thousand. And it's like not even close. The comparison is not even close. And we, we get stuck up on the like, what, what's with the three to four? And God's just like, as long as you keep messing up, there's going to be ramifications for your sin. And it, it alludes to like the future when Paul writes in Romans of God handing them over to their wickedness and destruction. What Romans explains is that's just the consequences of their own sin. And God's saying, hey, if you're going to do that, I'm going to leave you to your consequences. He's like, but if, as soon as you come back to me, I'll bless you for a thousand generations. That my mercy and grace are so much greater than my justice and judgment. And as we think about who God is, we sometimes wrestle with mercy and judgment. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote, mercy triumphs over judgment. That as you're thinking about who is God, what is he like, what's his nature and character, this is who he is. He's justice. He's just, he's good, he's perfect, he's holy, and he can't let sin go unpunished. But he's slow to anger, giving so many opportunities to turn back to him that the only way you experience judgment is to not choose mercy. You can't earn it. You can't do anything except say, God, I need that free gift. And his mercy triumphs over judgment. He's so good. He's so kind. That's why when he chooses to pass before Moses in this really famous, important passage, he says, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. Slow to anger in Hebrew literally means I, I have a long nose like me. I have a big nose. <laughs> no, but God's like, I have a long nose because in Hebrew, when they describe anger, the, the phrase is their nose gets hot. Their nose gets hot. And God's like, it takes a long time for my nose to get hot. In our culture, that would be like describing somebody with a short fuse or a long fuse. You guys know that language? That's the idea. You're like, God, somebody, that person gets mad so fast and that person has a long fuse. God's saying, I have a long fuse. I'm slow to anger. I give so many opportunities. But he's abounding in love. The word for love there is, is hesed. It's loyal love. It's like my love is, is loyal just because of who I am. And he's faithful. 
we don't understand how merciful God is until we understand how great of a need we have for mercy. That you, the more you understand your own need, the greater you understand how much he truly loves you. That, that he would do anything, anything being sending his own son to die for you so that he can have relationship with you. From the beginning, the story of God has been him wanting relationship with his creation, that they would reflect his glory and his goodness, that they'd show his faithfulness and love. And over and over, we mess it up, but he offers mercy. He says, choose me. Choose me again. God wants to dwell with us. I want to talk really quickly in the last few minutes, just maybe a minute on each of these five attributes God describes about himself. Compassion. Compassion is a beautiful word, and there's some great word studies out there, and Bible Project actually did like a really good visual one on, on this passage, and I encourage you to watch it. And it's the idea of, of God's emotion moving him to action. God's compassionate. We see this in Jesus so much. They would say if Jesus moved by compassion would heal the sick or, or do miracles or whatever he would do, that, that it's the emotion and love of God that leads him to action. Compassion, the root word of it, is connected to the Hebrew word that also means womb. And it's this imagery of like he, he parents us. He loves us like infants, that he's deeply connected to us. He's gracious. He says, I'm compassionate and gracious. That the idea of grace is giving a present with delight. That you're just excited to give it. That he offers grace and it's so beautiful and we see that in Jesus. Jesus talks about how everything he does is what the Father wants. That if you want to see the Father, you look at him. That he's the perfect representation of that. And I think sometimes if we don't fully understand, we can say, I don't see it. But when we look back and see how slow to anger and compassionate God is, we, we say, I see Jesus in that. And I see the Father in Jesus. And that it encourages us. And that he's slow to anger, the third one. We already talked about this, that it's the idea of the long nose, that, that he's so patient. The New Testament talks about that. He's, he's patient because he's hoping that everyone will change their mind. They'll come to him. He's abounding in love, this loyal love, this generosity and commitment. This is the type of love that Ruth has for Naomi. When she says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay committed to you. I'm going to go where you go. Your people are going to be my people. That's, that's God's love towards us. That that psalm that keeps repeating his love endures forever, and it says like one thing, and then his love endures forever, and then one thing, and then it's the same word there. It's, a, it's his loyal love endures forever. Psalm 136. He's also faithful. And you're like, faithful, that's like loyalty, right? It is like loyalty, but it's, it's even more than that, that it's, it's related to the truth. It's related to, um, it's the Hebrew word emet, which is like saying that's true. Like God is true to himself. He's consistent. Like he doesn't, we saw him relent and change his mind there, but, but he was changing back to his character that's true. Like Moses is like, this is who you are. And it's, it's this beautiful imagery that God is faithful to who he is. That, that's why so many times people would refer to God's past faithfulness and say, would you do that here? Would you do that for me? 
Would you do that for us? I love that this is how God chooses to describe himself. That in the middle of their egregious sin, the breaking of the covenant immediately, this, they cheated on the honeymoon and God still forgives them. And in the middle of that, he's like, this is who I am, Moses. You're going to see it right here. He's like, I won't let the unjust go unpunished. I'm going to punish sin. He's like, but I'm going to be as patient as I can. And I'm always going to offer mercy. The only way to face judgment is not to choose mercy. The story this week as I was studying this and really loving it and reflecting on it, I kept thinking of the prodigal son. That story where Jesus shares this parable of the father who has two sons and one of them's like, you know, I'm just going to go do my own thing, dad. Can I have the inheritance now? And he lets him go and he squanders it and wastes it and makes all of his own choices that end up, he doesn't get any of the satisfaction he thinks he's going to get. That when he chooses to do things his own way, he thinks it's going to be better and it ends up being far worse. And he has that realization and he's like, you know, I was much better off with my dad. He's like, maybe he'll accept me back even just as a servant. Just all I need to do is get back in the household. And so he starts heading home, not knowing how his dad's going to respond, full of shame, kind of rehearsing what he's going to say. And while he's still a long way off, his dad sees him, comes running to him, embraces him, showers him with love, tells everybody, hey, we're throwing a party because he's back. Get him, get him a robe, get him a ring, kill our best calf. We're having steak. Like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to celebrate. And his son, like, is like, all I wanted was just to even be a servant. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm celebrating because my son is back. That's a picture of who our God is. So as we asked in the beginning, as we read that quote, you know, and said, what, what do you think of when you think of God? I hope that as we reflect on this scripture and how God even describes himself and his consistency throughout the Bible, that we realize that he's merciful, that he's full of grace, he's compassionate, abounding in love, slow to anger. That he's just, but he's the just God who forgives. That he doesn't just turn a blind eye to our sin, but actually offers us a way out. What a beautiful picture. He wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. He wouldn't be good if he didn't call wrong, wrong. He does. He just says, hey, there's a way out. And so the New Testament teaches that we're all those people that we're the Israelites who've, who've done our own thing, that we break the law immediately, and that our intercessor, because God changes his mind for one person, is the perfect intercessor. It's Jesus. That he comes, lives a perfect life, dies for us, rises again on the third day, and we have the offer to be forgiven, to receive mercy instead of judgment. What a good God. What a gracious loving God. My prayer is that this week you would reflect on how good he is. It's drawn me to worship more this week, just to be like, God, you are so good. That the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, man, I really, I, I deserve all of that. I deserve separation. I deserve punishment, death, but you, you love me. 
how radical, how much mercy. And so my first invitation is if you've never taken God up on the offer, you've never received mercy, you're headed towards judgment. And it's not because he's not loving, it's because he is just. The part where we see his love is that he's saying, if you don't want that, all you have to do is receive mercy. There's always a way out. Just turn to me. And so if you've never made that decision, it's simply saying, God, I'm choosing you. I'm receiving that free gift you offer. I'm, I'm turning 180 degrees and I'm going to follow after you now because I want mercy, I want grace. I want to receive your compassionate love towards me. In that moment, what's beautiful, because we saw that, that picture of covenant broken, intercession, and then covenant restored, and God's presence came and lived with them in a mediated, partial way. But for us, it's covenant broken, Jesus' intercession, and when we receive that, his presence comes and lives inside of us. That he gives us his spirit. And so if that's you today, you're, you're saying, God, I'm choosing you. He puts his spirit inside of you, and it changes everything. And if you've never had that, I want to pray for you this morning. Just say, God, I need you. I ask for your mercy. I ask for your grace. I ask for forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit. Make me new. Change me from the inside out. In your name I pray. Amen. For the rest of us, I just want us to reflect on how good he is. That he is who he says he was. That he's abounding in love, slow to anger, gracious, compassionate. Because as we behold who he truly is, it changes us. A.W. Tozer knew it. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our image of God. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com. We hope you have a great week.